Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Matt Morris, who's the Sustainability Advisor at Canterbury University. And in this episode, we find out all about his life and what he's doing today and really hone in on an upcoming series of events around the Sustainable Development Goals that will be culminating in an event in September of 2021. I know you can enjoy this, so we're going to get straight into it. And if you do enjoy this interview, then remember there's about 230 others in the back catalog. And there's heaps of content at theseeds.nz. And make sure to check out the show notes, because that's where I've put links in to the upcoming seminars that Matt refers to. Now let's dive into this conversation with Matt. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Matt Morris, who's the Sustainability Advisor at the University of Canterbury. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, I really appreciate your time. Um, The things that you're involved in are really fascinating to me, because I know you're doing a lot of work with the Sustainable Development Goals, and you're running a series of events And in fact, as we're recording this, the first one is next week, I think. So we'll put links in the show notes and things. But before we talk about what you're doing around sustainability, I would love to find out a bit about your background. Can you describe what life was like for you when you were, say, four or five years old? What are some of your first memories? I grew up in St. Martin's, you know, by the hills. And my school, primary school, was very close by, Opawa Primary School. Um, And so our... Yeah, I have a brother and sister, they're both older than me, and uh, we lived at the end of a cul-de-sac with other families, with children the same ages, roughly. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of time at the end of the cul-de-sac, playing games with one another and being in and out of each other's homes. Um, And the the neighborhood was quite tight. They did odd things, uh, things that seem odd now, like... For example, on Christmas morning, um, somebody in the in the street would host the other neighbours. You know, the mothers would always be kind of rushing backwards and forwards um, to check on the Christmas lunch things. You know, it was a bit funny, but I don't know that that happens so much now. So it was a very tight knit neighbourhood, and down the end of our street was the Heathcote River. Um, we had a sea lion, Elizabeth the sea lion that used to come up and visit and just kind of blob across the end of our street a lot. And, um, yeah, I mean, I... So it sounds like lots of outdoor memories of your childhood, like playing with other kids and, you know, cul-de-sac and the sea lion. Yeah, it's funny to hear it, to hear that back, because I don't really... I've never really considered myself to be an outdoorsy person, Mm -hmm. oddly enough. I I guess as as a child... Um, I did interact with all the people around me, but actually I also, um, I also used to hide away quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I liked to be in little nooks in the garden and, um, what did you like about that? I liked the feeling of being on my own. (laughs) (laughs) I think we, you know, this, uh, I'm not sure if it was because we were so, you know, so involved in the, in the world and the people around us. Um, but I also, you know, my brother and sister, um, being around, I just like to withdraw and, and, and be on my own quite a bit. I am, um, I'm fully an introvert and I get energy from being just, you know, at peace. Um, 
so uh yeah so i guess that was part of it yeah mm -hmm. but our garden was nice i really enjoyed um i really enjoyed hanging out in the garden and you know growing little sunflowers and mm -hmm. my mum has a memory of me um lying down you know sort of like this with my head on my hands lying on the on the concrete staring at something for hours and hours and you know at some point she came out and said matt what are you doing and i said oh i'm watching this courgette grow because <laughs> you know they grow so quickly at that time of the year and it does sound like the kind of thing i would do i don't actually remember doing it <laughs> <laughs> oh that's interesting and so coming up through your sort of um, teenage years and things did certain areas of subjects in school appeal to you i was much more drawn into the arts um, than the sciences for sure mm -hmm. yeah and um I mean, I was quite active in, like, I had this idea that I was going to be a filmmaker um, at one point. Actually, that point went on for quite a long time. and But at the same time, I was really interested in science fiction, especially Doctor Who. You know, like, Doctor Who is my big thing. Everybody that knows me knows this about me. And Is it uh, still your big thing, then? Pretty big, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not as big. I mean, I founded one of the New Zealand Doctor Who um, fanzine, one of the early fanzines. And okay, doesn't run anymore. We only did it for a couple of years. So, and what what years was this then that you were really getting into Doctor Who? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually my whole life because right. I mean, I don't rem I don't remember not having that in my life. It was definitely something. That was um, I was introduced to by my brother, and um, I do remember the first episode. Funnily enough, it involved a garden. <laughs> It involved people who turned into plants and then people getting mulched up into compost and put back into the garden. It was quite weird. Um, so, you know, that's going into the 70s. But this whole thing of mine, you know, doing the fanzine and getting a bit creative with that was in the late late 80s, early 90s. I would have been 15, 16. Mm -hmm. So this is well before um, internet websites and oh, yeah. it, you're literally talking about mailing things out to that's people. right yeah <laughs> we made it on a typewriter uh -huh. glued everything together by hand photocopied it <laughs> at my dad's office and then posted them out it was cool and how many people would you send it out to like 20 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> probably something like that yeah yeah. Oh, interesting. So what was it that you love or what, it sounds like you still love it. So what, what was it that you enjoy about Doctor Who? Um, I, I think it's a cool, um, it's a cool concept that is just so versatile. Anything can be done with it. You know, if, I love the way that something so ordinary, you know, that telephone box can sort of be a portal into the mysteries of the universe. And um, yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot that could be said about it, but basically it's just fun, it's imaginative, can work in all sorts of genres, and yeah, that's, and with, you know, in the original series, with almost no budget, mm. with almost no budget, and that's just really cool to be so creative and so enduring, but, you know, with basically just quite crappy painted backdrops, I mm. think was real fun. So it was this, the stories that came through? Yeah, the stories and, and, you know, as I was starting to get interested in filmmaking and stuff, um, I really was paying quite a lot of attention to mm. the, um, into the techniques that they employed. And I got involved in a, in a filmmaking um, club, you know, that's what I was going to say. Mm -hmm. 
about that and everything we made was Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> so this is sort of late 1980s, is it? Or Yeah, moving into the early 90s, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I started to get interested in more sort of uh, yeah, darker genres, I think, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, and then music started to become a really big, big deal for me um, with punk and goth and, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's really good. So what, what was it like for you coming to the end of high school years? Did you know what you wanted to do next? or? Um... Um, my passion was printmaking and painting and then writing. So in that order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, uh, I, I had quite a strong desire to go to fine arts. And I actually, my best um, subjects were were in fine arts um but back then i'm not sure if it's still the same you had to pre-enroll before you got your grades and i had been kind of told there was no point doing fine arts because you know you have to be really good um it turned out that i was in the top uh, th- i think i was 13th in the country or something with printmaking and and so that was fine but i'd already enrolled in the in the in and a BA and that's fine I mean that's what I ended up doing I didn't really know I had also thought that I wanted to be a school teacher and um, I remember one of my teachers saying to me and I got accepted into teachers college but one of my teachers said to me Matt whatever you do don't be a teacher you will dry up and she said save up a little bit of money, go to St. Petersburg and live on the streets for a year. <laughs> and I thought that was quite, quite extreme advice to get from a teacher. Um, and I didn't actually do that. I did later go to St. Petersburg, but only for a, a week. <laughs> um, and I didn't live on the streets. But I, um, that was, yeah, that was really important advice. I'm so glad that I got it because I, th- I think she was probably right. Um, and so I did a degree that was basically just all the things that seemed most interesting to me. I did religious studies, film. I mean, you know, it was not making film, but the study of films. Um, and history, which is my, my major. Hmm. So what did, the, what did that teacher seen in you, do you think, that caused her to say that? Why did it resonate so strongly with you? I think there's a temptation sometimes to just you know do something that seems like it's going to lead to stability and I don't know why she wanted to disrupt that for me probably I would have quite liked doing that you know being a teacher but um yeah I don't know I I really don't know I mean I it's almost like she identified that the creative you know mindset or the the creative flow would be interrupted if you got into that type of career yeah I think that's right yeah I, I I think that I like the idea of being in front of a classroom of kids you know and talking about things that I'm very passionate about and mm-hmm. working with them um, to unlock some learning or some ideas um, but I probably wouldn't be great with the copious amounts of paperwork and you know to bo- box ticking and mm 
regulation things and whatnot. I don't know. But um, <laughs> but anyway, it's fine. I'm totally happy with what I'm doing now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it all worked out. <laughs> um, can we just, I'm just really curious, you mentioned printmaking. Mm. Can you describe that for us? And for those of us who haven't done printmaking, what exactly are you meaning? Uh, making pictures um, that are prints. So, and there are lots of different ways of doing it, but the one, the way that I liked um, the most was making woodcuts. Right. So that's carving a picture into the wood um, and then rolling ink on it and then running that through a press um, mm-hmm. to get an impression. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy the process of cutting the wood. I re- It's just very cathartic. It's very relaxing. And something happens with my mind when I'm doing that, that it sort of, it's quite unlocking. I, I sort of feel like I'm changing gear. Um, but I... Uh, yeah, and so I also long to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a press, but I haven't been able to carve out the time to mm-hmm. make prints right. for a while. So what does changing gear feel like? It's sort of like becoming part of the wood in a way. <laughs> it's the same with painting. I find it very much the same that, mm-hmm. you know, just after a while, it takes a little while um, but then, you know, because it starts out like, oh, this isn't very clear. What am I doing? I need some structure. Blah, blah. You know, I want sort of guidance. Uh, and then after a while, it's like, no, no, this is very clear. It's absolutely obvious. It's just sort of coming mm. through. Um, I also have the same experience with writing when I'm writing something. Um, I, yeah, I often find that it takes a little while and then suddenly it's just clarity this is clarity i feel like everything has become very apparent mm. it's a nice feeling mm. it's quite quite a skill though to be able to you know take the piece of wood design it and then actually print something yeah it's great i um i watch printmakers on facebook and wow you guys are amazing i don't claim that i just you know i like doing it mm-hmm. um yeah, to do it well, of course, is is another matter altogether. <laughs> so, um, talk us through the n- the next few years after graduating. Um, what what happened in your life, or what did you get involved in? So, I finished my um, BA in ninety six, I think ninety six, mm-hmm. maybe, and then I had a year off. That was the year that I went to St. Petersburg for a week. Right. There were a couple of other places I wasn't away for the whole year. And then um, came came back. But something happened in the middle of all of that, which is really important to me, um, to keep myself, um, you know, I suppose, to earn some income. Mm. From the time that I was about 13 um, until in my early 20s, I worked in a supermarket um, in St. Martin's. St. Martin's New World, the old one, was really interesting. There were a lot of things going on there that I've often reflected on. And one of them is that um, the office of Rod Donald, who was co-leader of the Green Party, was right next door to the supermarket. And oddly enough, he had a very good relationship with the owner of the supermarket, um, so much so that he that they jointly funded a project to label every product in the supermarket to declare whether it had GE ingredients or not. And it was completely radical and really upset the, um, the chain. 
but the owner was heading towards retirement, you know, and this was something that he felt very, very strongly about. So mm. it was quite unusual. There was something quite political in the in the air there. Um, and the other thing was that it was the first supermarket in the country that had a dedicated organic section. And in part that's because it's on that side of town, the kind of Rudolf Steiner belt. Um, but also, um, also there was some important input from a man called Bob Crowder who ran the biological husbandry unit at Lincoln University and that is the oldest organic um, demonstration unit um, in New Zealand is still running started in the late 70s mm-hmm. and I got to know Bob as well as um, as the owner of the supermarket Brian um, and Rod Donald um, and you know, and it's an important that moment of you know go, changing out of high school, going into uni, and then moving through that and the, all the studies, everything. It really, it really brought something um, home to me, which was how amazing it is that people will commit themselves to doing something about the way that the world is. I suppose I must have seen that happen. In fact, I had. Um, an early foray into that. I remember writing, my first political action was probably writing to Jim Bolger when he was Prime Minister about the idea that New, New Zealand would change its nuclear status and I was you know, sort of 15 or 16 I think when I did that. Um, but I started to get quite interested in politics and uh, yeah, sort of around 96 or so I got a little, quite a lot more interested um, and then that um, connection that I had with Bob Crowder became more important. I um, shifted in with him and became very sort of immersed in the organic sector. Mm-hmm. Um, not really, I wouldn't say involved, but just immersed. I knew a lot of the people that were doing things bec- um, in that world because they were coming to visit Bob and I just happened to be there. Um, and then yeah, and so I had finished my degree and I was looking around to do something that was actually, um, yeah, might have some meaning. So I got a job working for the Organic Garden City Trust, uh, which had been set up uh, on the inspiration of Vicky Buck, who had been the mayor. The idea was that Christchurch could be the world's first organic garden city. We were the garden city but now let's be the organic garden city and um, and I got a job working as the coordinator for that um it was based at the Christchurch Environment Center and so my kind of world expanded a lot again from from doing that so inspiring and I think of all of all of the pieces of work that we were doing the the one that seemed most um remarkable to me was that there was a a group called the community and home gardens group and I didn't actually understand what that was but I was the coordinator for this trust so I needed to find out Mm -hmm. and that's when I learned about community gardens and some somebody explained to me what a community garden was because I'd never heard of them before and you know we're talking like 1999 here um, so it probably seems very ridiculous that I didn't know, but I had, and they said, you know, people, they find there's a piece of land 
probably from the council or something that, that isn't being used and people come together they grow food they share the food amongst themselves and make a beautiful environment while they're doing it and i just thought this is incredible <laughs> again you know wow people are put you know using the energy to do this stuff mm. it's very inspiring so um yeah so i got more involved in that particular element but we were also working in school gardens and yeah i mean different kind of at the tertiary education level a little bit mm. it's amazing to think back because the what you're describing like all that was new and organic you know like that was relatively new and there has been a lot of change now like we're recording this at the end of 2020 and i think almost most supermarkets there would have at least a section wouldn't they that has organic products yeah that's quite right and the um yeah and it's actually supermarkets that are really driving um the organic mm -hmm. um sector in new zealand mm. now used to be you know the specialist food shops etc but yeah the, the supermarkets it's very mainstream and so mainstream now that actually many supermarkets don't in fact have a separate organic section they've reintegrated the organic lines um into the main mm. um just because it's you know an option that most people will consider now mm. so yeah it's that's anyway i find that kind of stuff quite interesting so now you're the sustainability advisor at canterbury university um just talk us through the years that have led up until that and um yeah how did you end up doing what you're doing today i resigned from that um i wanted to do something different uh and that thing was going back to uni to do my phd and I wasn't really too sure at that point what I wanted that to be around, but I suspected it would be, I mean, it was going to be something in the environmental field. Mm -hmm. um, earlier on, when I was first going to um, consider doing my PhD, I was meant to be um, researching a history of drinking in Scotland in the 18th century, which actually would have been huge fun. But there came a point in my thinking process, which was like, I can't actually... I can't I can't do that it's it's not it's not it's not relevant to me um, I really want to read that history if anybody does it but I didn't want to do it myself um, so I thought it was going to be on a history of organics in New Zealand mm -hmm. um, but actually it turned out to be a history of home gardening in Christchurch which was much more conf you know a much sort of more manageable project uh, and very, it was so delightful. I just loved, um, I loved particularly the interviewing process. I loved interviewing the old people and collecting these stories of gardening in the 30s, 40s, um, even the late 20s in a couple of um, instances. And, um, and so, yeah, so that was a really lovely project. Um, and then that finished what was the takeaway from all of that research and it was quite a lot um there's quite a lot in in it but i suppose what it really touched on for me which you know circles back to some of the earlier thoughts thought processes that i'd had mm -hmm. is how um how important it is for people to connect with the earth and you know and there's a lot of different ways that people do that but it really 
the the history that I ended up writing is very much in the kind of post-colonial frame. So it starts started to touch on the fact that gardening is connected to land ownership and it's therefore connected to equity and justice issues, even though that's not really what I was mainly writing about. I was talking about the kinds of things that people planted in their gardens and where they got their plants from and how they learned how to do gardening mm-hmm. um, and kind of revisiting a standard methodology for doing garden history. But the thing that really stood out for me was, um, yeah, was this question around equal access to land and how disempowering it can be for a community when they have their land taken from them. Yeah. And that's something that I pursued further in, in a book that I have coming out from Otago Uni Press uh, at the moment. I think it's due out next week as well, actually. Yeah, but that goes into much more. It goes into that particular question much more than what my PhD went into. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious because I lived in Tokyo for five years and I lived in an apartment and there was a balcony and it was about this big, you know, very small but I do remember going to a gardening store and buying some pots and coming home and on the tiny, tiny balcony that we had, planting some seeds and growing things. And it was like the space that I had, I still wanted to at least have something growing. Yeah, and that's awesome. And for me, that's a garden. Yeah, so I've, I've talked a bit about, in the book, I've talked about the colonial process and um, the way that some communities who'd been here for hundreds of years were relieved of their lands um, and their gardens and you know the gardens being such a core part of identity and mana you know authority but also just identity and um yeah and these wonderful colonial gardens that got sort of written over the top of that history mm. That are brilliant, you know, brilliant places, and I and I th- yeah. So it's it's complicated, but I think that we sometimes we sometimes forget that you know underneath um, underneath the the land that we can see in front of us, there's you know these amazing stories of earlier iterations that um, have involved different communities possibly and different stories and the processes around how the transformations have happened can sometimes be just or sometimes be unjust. Mm. Yeah. So really, I suppose what the book does is it starts with the pre-colonial period, um, periods uh, where gardening was characterized by there being a massive community effort, Mm -hmm. community involvement, everybody in the community being involved and land ownership being a kind of alien concept, something that's just not really considered. Um, and then into that kind of colonial, privatized, individualized um, period, um, which led to a, um, ultimately to a de-skilling, so loss of knowledge about how to do, how to grow food, mm-hmm. how to grow other plants as well. Um, and then, and then this quite significant um, and concerted community effort to reskill people on those things, starting with 
community gardens, starting with school gardens, um, so that now there's a, a higher level of knowledge in the community about how to take care of ourselves through the way that we use our land than there probably than how the, than what there was in say the 80s. Mm. Yeah, and that transformations happened quite quickly, and it's being really profound and it's very exciting and it's funny for me to sort of look back and go oh yeah I remember I remember when basically people didn't know what <laughs> what it what a community garden was but also you know how to grow food yeah it's interesting as well with COVID and sort of staying at home I think people looked more at their yards and thought well we could grow some of our own vegetables here you know we we can't go out necessarily but why don't we convert this part here to grow some carrots or do some different things? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I'd love to, I'd love to learn more about some of those stories. <clears throat> um, but certainly COVID taught us a lot about how to live in a different way that, um, that is consistent with living in a more sustainable way. Mm. So there's a lot of lessons still to unpack uh, from that Um and that's something that we're hoping to do through this uh, SDG Summit series. Mm. But there was another piece too. Um, so I so the PhD, and then um, straight after that, I um, I thought it would be a good idea for me to get involved in local body politics. Mm -hmm. And so I had a term in uh, one of the community boards, and that was just you know so eye opening and wonderful to see again how much great work people are doing out in the community i mean it's you know at these at the micro level you know the streets and the the local neighborhood mm. people put enormous energy into making the world a better place and uh, you know it's very humbling to see so um and i realized actually i wanted to spend more of my time at that end than around a table in which you know in which it seemed like a lot of our time was spent deciding where yellow lines should be put and um where rubbish bins should be placed and uh things that i mean no disrespect to people who um, are working hard in local government um but yeah for me i found that I, that was enough. I wanted to do something much more practical. Um, and luckily I got this uh, job at, at uni. So I've been there in the sustainability office for um, 11 years now. Hmm. Can I just ask or pick up on one thing you mentioned, which is sort of the stories that are unseen, even when you look at a garden, for example, that there's a legacy of people presumably who've planted this plant and done this thing. Um, I'm just really curious about that because I think you're right. Too often in life we walk by things and we don't think about the hidden histories that are surrounding us everywhere we look. Um, is that one of the themes then that comes out through your, your book? Uh, probably not as much as I would like it to. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's in there. It's definitely in there. One of the things that I've um, been able to do, and I, and I just wish that I could have done more with this um, is follow particular families over generations mm -hmm. and so there's a few families who um, who I've done that with and sometimes I'm seeing 
the kind of knowledge networks or understanding of how to do things collapse, um, sometimes continue. Um, and there was one instance that I can think of where there was a piece of land that I could watch over decades or, um, yeah, one garden, for example, was, yeah, there was a fantastic garden on it and, and then it was sold to another family who um, continued but changed it. Um, yeah. So, and I think that's a really important element of garden history and environmental history is to understand that nothing happens in a void. You know, it's, especially with gardens, there's always something there before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that can be the, the sequel. <laughs> that would <laughs> be, I think, I think it would be fascinating because I'm just reading a book right now and I'm going to write a book review about it for the podcast, I think, because I'm enjoying it so, so much. It's called The Overstory. I don't know if you've heard of it by Richard Powers. And basically it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction last year. And he's told this, it's a long book. It's like, you know, five or 600 pages, but it's told through the eyes of trees, um, or at least trees are major characters in the book. And then the people intersect with the trees. And so just as one example, there's a farmer in the 1890s who starts taking photos of this particular tree and every month he takes a photo and he starts to compile it and then he dies. His son starts taking photos of the same tree, same position every month. That person dies, the next son. So it's like this intergenerational story of this tree, but then you see the human lives weaving in with the tree, which of course outlives all of them, you know. Um, but it's really fascinating told from that intergenerational perspective with the I guess the lens of the trees that are around us. I think you'd really enjoy it. <laughs> yes, um, it has actually been recommended to me a couple of times before. Yeah. Now that you describe it, I was like, oh, that's right. That's the one. Thank you yeah. for reminding me. Yeah, yeah. I think you'd really. I, I was. It's it's a really impressive body of work because it's told with such a different perspective, but it's very much about this intergenerational perspective um, when it comes to the climate, trees the land you know so often books are very short you know focused on a person and their journey this is that stepping back and looking at the thousands of years story that led to this tree being planted here anyway it's a side topic but um yeah you, we'll definitely have to get you a copy of that <laughs> so what you're doing today um so, so you've been doing that for 11 years and what what's your main focus um and what are you trying to achieve through the role that you've got I suppose that the challenge for any organization that's considering journeying down a sustainability route is to consider what its main business is um, and to see what they're doing to transform that business. So it's sort of funny to talk about a university in the sense of business and I don't really like to use that language, but, um, but you know, for a university, what's our greatest opportunity to make an impact or a, or a difference? And it really has to be through our students, you know, what they absorb while they're, what they're with us, and then what do they take out into the world, and how do they, you know, marshal all of that to, to change things for the better. Mm -hmm. So... But we also are a research institution, and the two things clearly go hand in hand. 
Um, when I started at the university, we had just come out of a long, fairly long period for the sustainability office, if you want to call it that. It was really like an environmental projects office um, where the focus was on taking care of our physical impact. So making sure that we were energy efficient, people turning off the lights. Um, we have streams that run through the campus, so trying to do some stream restoration work. Um, <clears throat> introducing a recycling scheme because there hadn't been one. Um, things like that. It's sort of called greening the campus. It's quite 1990s, actually. You know, we... we um, then had started to embark onto a um, program of, um, I guess you could call it behavior change. So influencing the way people interact with the infrastructure. And so that's sort of like, mid, you know, sort of mid 2000s <laughs> or late, you know, to, to 2010s or whatever, the behavior change approach. And the reason that that was the focus was because Sustainability, I'm talking about at UC, but also at sustainability offices around the world. We're kind of all walking in step, you know. Mm. Uh, and most sustainability offices were actually within facilities management, facility management departments. Mm -hmm. And so the influence that we have in those spaces isn't really in the formal curriculum or the research programs. We don't. You know, we can talk to students and we can talk to lecturers and, and um, at the academic staff, of course, um, but not really be too involved in that side of the university. And so the behavior change programs where, you know, it's kind of um, the behavior change programs where we influence behavior um, with a next best thing to actually being part of the formal curriculum mm -hmm. they called it the shadow curriculum actually mm -hmm. and uh, and at uc we had lots of these shadow curriculum um, offerings for students that was super super um, interesting and fun and people loved it mm -hmm. like eco my flat is a great example where we had this student flatting competition and the flats would enter and they would do these workshops and you know change their the way that they did things in their flats and mm -hmm. it was really cool um, but I think we've come out of that now and the organization, the university is starting to think much more strategically about the curriculum and about the research program. We um, at UC now have a, a new UC strategy. The strategy is made up of, um, I think it's five things. Um, but one of those things is the sustainability strategy component mm -hmm. and the sustainability strategy talks about weaving sustainability into research talks about weaving sustainability and particularly the SDGs into um, the curriculum across you know across all the colleges um, it talks about becoming carbon net neutral by 2030 it talks about taking care of our physical environment in the way that you know we started doing in the 90s uh, and it also talks about partnerships and engagement, you know, the kind of people, the, the organizations and, and, um, and people that we can collaborate with to um, mutually reinforce that sustainability agenda. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that I'm working on at the moment. Mm. And, uh, and I guess this, in the partnerships space, the, the, the project there that's taking 
up the most of my energy and our office's energy um, in a really beautiful and delightful way is the SDG Summit Series. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to find out more about them um, and what what the plan is in terms of focus and, and what's going to be happening. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, the SDG Summits uh, were an idea that um, came out of the mind of um, Dr. Pedro Impernia, um, who is based in Auckland. He's the chair of the United Nations Association uh, Northern Branch. And he thought it would be a great idea to get people together from across multiple sectors um, to talk about the sustainable development goals and figure out how people are going to work together to advance them in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first summit happened in 2018. It was run at Victoria University. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one in 2019 was run at the University of Auckland with AUT. And um, and so at that one, we were handed the baton. It was like, okay, Canterbury. Well, we the, the first thing was, this should be hosted in the South Island next time. Right. And, um, and we kind of put our hands up and said, well, we're king. Uh, so, yeah, so that's how it happened. And our, um, the the whole process is continuing to evolve. We anticipate these summits continuing out to 2030 when the SDGs mature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so as we develop this next thing that's going to be in Christchurch and the online series preceding it, um, we're also, yeah, starting to develop a kind of national framework around what we're doing, why we're doing it, who's involved, you know? Yeah. Yeah, how it all fits together. So practically speaking, if people are listening, what are some of the things that they could potentially attend or yeah, what what's on the horizon? Yeah, well, the first thing is the first online uh, event that we have on Thursday 19th of November. It starts at 6.30. It's a couple of hours. Um, and at that, there will be, oh, there's some great speakers. There's mm. our youth speakers, Lucy Gray and Tamati Cunningham, um, very inspiring, very passionate, um, very active. Uh, and we have Pedro Pernier himself um, talking about what um, about what, the why of the SDG summits, but also, I think, foreshadowing the idea that we may be needing to develop a declaration, um, an Aotearoa declaration on the SDGs. Mm. Um, and then Raywin Jones, who founded the... Uh, or co-founded the um, Waikato um, Wellbeing Project, which was launched earlier this year um, by uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and that's really it's a great a, a great case study of how a community can be mobilised in a specific region around the SDGs. Mm. Um, so, you know, like Jacinda said when she when she launched it, no pressure, but we're all watching you and. <laughs> So for us, it's like, cool, yeah, we, we need to learn more about what's happening up in the Waikato around this mm-hmm. um, and see perhaps these opportunities for us to mirror that or at least, at least learn um, how we might implement, how we might extend that out into other regions in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I came across Raywin because of her work in impact investing. So sure. I do a lot in that space mm-hmm. and she's done a lot of... Um, Good thought leadership about the importance of impact investing and looking at more than just financial returns, particularly for big foundations or or groups that have the money, 
rather than just giving it out, why not invest it and get more than just interest? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So people can sign up for that and we'll put in a link in the show notes if people are interested. But then it's kind of building up to something, right? So just describe what that's going to be. Yes, this um, we, we decided that instead of having one face-to-face gathering, like the other two um, summits have been, that we would run a year-long summit series, <laughs> uh, which in part was inspired by COVID, you know, and the fact that we probably needed to be a little bit more agile and consider an online option. Um, so, yeah, so we're running three online summits, three online events. Um, this first one in November, there's another one in March next year and then June next year. Uh, and then they're all kind of leading towards the face-to-face summit in Christchurch, which will be on the 2nd and 3rd of September at the University of Canterbury, but also um, including field trips around and abouts and seeing some of the cool things that are happening in, in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, the theme for the series is Pathways to Urgent Action. And I think we're all tired of talking 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 about the need to change but not being willing to change and that just isn't gonna fly now you know we need to come up with the plan and start doing it so um, each of the events has got a different title um, under the overall umbrella of pathways to urgent action the first one that we're doing next week is see the change so that's like be inspired by what's already happening the second one is be the change. So it's um, more of uh, yeah, more of more of an opportunity for people to figure out what they're going to do. Um, and then the, in the third one, the emphasis is around collaboration for change, because one thing is certain, and that is that we cannot achieve the SDGs if we don't work together. We can't just, you know, be like, oh, my D- my SDG is going to be, you know, life um, life on land and I'm going to do this in my own garden. I mean, that's cool. That it, that actually does matter. Um, it's a silly example, really, because I think that's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, that overall, it, what we're needing is a, is a complete systems change. And in order to achieve that, we have to work across um, sectors we have to be able to work with people that we don't like I think or that we don't naturally find ourselves aligning with mm. um, because as I keep saying you know we either all make it or none of us do you can't sort of have you know a little bit of um, um, you know of a sustainable world it's melting down you know we 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 have to all pull together to do this so there's a sort of metaphor running through what how we're considering this process this it's a journey the first bit of the journey is we kind of arrive at the place like we arrive on the beach you know we've all sort of we get out of our boats we don't know who each other are we we arrive there we know where we're meant to be um and we know that often the distance is this summit you know this mountain summit we have to we're going to get to it we're going to get to the top of that Mm -hmm. but we don't know who each other is we don't know what our skills skill sets are we don't know what we need to know we don't know what we don't know and so we're kind of journeying through a process of um, understanding ourselves as individuals um, and then understanding more about 
the other people around us who are also journeying um, with us and then figuring out when we get to some you know to event number three that's when we're kind of looking around going geez do we have everything we need in order to climb the mountain Mm -hmm. in a way in which all of us are going to get to the top (laughs) because it's not an option to leave some people behind Mm -hmm. so it's a bit of a you know that's that's how i see it anyway Mm -hmm. um the the face-to-face event in christchurch is that you know that's the mountaintop we we um will have the pathways documented the declaration hopefully out there and agreed to by everybody Mm. and um and know what we're doing and know how we're pooling our resources in order to achieve the thing that we have to achieve Mm. that's really good well i hope it is very successful see the change be the change collaborate for change that's a good sequence yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i think something you said earlier as well you know the grocery stores used to have the organic section marked but now it's sort of integrated wouldn't it be nice if some of the things that we're talking about here isn't doesn't have to be like what they do or you know it's it's that those people care about it but it just gets integrated into everyday life and thinking and ways of being for sure yeah and it's um, it's heartening to see so much of that mm. already happening, you know, and I mean, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, for example, this, um, you know, outcome of the US election, mm. seeming, seeming outcome of the US election mm-hmm. gives me more cause for hope that people are willing, um, to choose to choose a pathway that, that takes them, um, to work together than work against one another. And on the other hand, I guess we'll have to see how that <laughs> how that proceeds. Yeah. Well, this conversation is a moment in time, middle of November sort of time. Twenty. It's been a strange year, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great to hear some of your journey and then see how it's fed into what you're doing today. Um, that's why I like doing that on the podcast rather than just jumping into tell me about the summit series, kind of learning about your own background and and how you know, working as a high school student in that particular grocery store shaped what you've become. And I think that's important to, to realize that each of us are on journeys and that there's influences and things which guide us and, and help us on the way. So yeah, in the show notes, we'll put a link to the Summit series, to the Facebook page and website, um, and people can go through and, and click through and find out more. But thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt. I know for me, there were several things that stood out, and I'm looking forward to attending the events that he described. Make sure to check out the show notes for the links to find out more about them. And there's heaps more content at theseeds.nz. Until next time. Thank you.